Hello, fantasy fans, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Molkel, here with my fateful co-hosts. I'm Chelsea Hollowell, a river that runs through the town. There are two rivers, but I'm one of them. That's pretty cool. You have like a cool neighbor. Yeah, do you mean the other river or the village of humans? I mean the other river. Okay. I would never want to live near humans. The other river is kind of a dick. Oh, bummer. And the humans kind of swim around in me. (laughs) Cool, I guess. But, uh, you know, I've learned to live with it. And they leave me tribute every once in a while. So, you know. Well, that's very exciting and (laughs) profitable. Oh, yes? Yes. Okay. Tribute. Oh, right. But me? I'm Jack Olander. The vague uh, concept of darkness, bad things. Uh, I have half animal monsters that follow my will. Okay, yeah, yeah, I'm what seeing I'm, it. What I'm saying is I'm darkness from the hit movie Legend. Oh, oh very cool. cool. I love yeah. that movie. Tim A- Curry. Apparently, I'm in this movie. I'm in this show, even. But I feel like they've recast Tim Curry as you. Yeah, that makes sense. And now it's somebody with a Voldemort face. I just have, yeah, I just have one question. What happened to your nose? Uh, why? Is it not there? (laughs) Evil doesn't get a nose. Yeah, it's true. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Because apparently this is based on Christian myth, too. (laughs) Does evil not have a nose in Christianity? Serpent, Wait a minute. Anything that's like a serpentine villain oh, okay. without a nose. It smells with its tongue. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? But anyway, I think that's who we are. That is who we are. <laughs> but what do we do? You tell us, Jamie. What we do here is we pitch our Patreon. Because otherwise, if you don't tell us, we're trapped in this sound prison forever. <laughs> <laughs> Only checking out our various tiers of extra content can you free us. <laughs> free us from the shackles of the capitalist machine. It's a bad machine, all right. Or chain us farther into it, I guess. No, it- by, by supporting artists, those artists don't have to go out and get soul-sucking jobs that drain them of all their creative juices. That's right. If you go to <laughs> patreon.com slash at swords and satire, is that us? Nope. nope. Just without the at. <laughs> Try again. If you go to patreon.com slash swords and satire, you'll find tons of quirky fun content. Yeah, you can help refill our creative juices. <laughs> yeah, by supporting us at one of the tiers, like we said. And we have uh, awesome bonus episodes and sometimes duck art. That's right. And fun outtakes, of which this episode has already had several. (laughs) Yeah, do you think people are going to like the part where I said that here on this show we pitch our Patreon? Because that's not the only thing we do. I like that part. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so out of it, I didn't catch that part. (laughs) But I will listen to it later. You sure will. And hopefully you will make it not sound like that is all we do here. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) No promises. But anyway, maybe there's something going on with this. 
episode because it feels like we're stuck in some sort of cycle. Yes, some kind yeah. of, uh, let's say, a loop of temporality. Yeah, some kind of Ouroboros of the fourth dimension. But in the third age. Whoa. <laughs> I think what we're getting at is that this week, we are going to start our satire TV coverage of The Wheel of Time. Available in, on an unnamed streaming service. Right. That we are not going to do any marketing for. But is easily determined once you look it up. <laughs> yes. And our cats are playing in the background, which you may or may not hear after I do some editing work. <laughs> I love how Buck explodes and Odin's just like... Whatever. <laughs> no, like, she's like, what's going on over there? <laughs> The so. Wheel of Time doesn't deserve perfect silence. Perfect <laughs> silence? Whoa. All right. So, yeah, we're covering a new show now because we just wrapped up The Witcher two weeks ago. And we were like, hey, we need to cover another show because that's what we do actually on this show is covering fantasy movies and TV shows. Yeah. And we are now starting The Wheel of Time, a, I believe, much beloved fantasy book series that I know basically nothing about and i figured it'd be perfect then for us to talk about on the show yeah i read the first three books and i enjoyed it i it's been so long that i don't remember what it was about the third book that annoyed me so much that i stopped reading but i can't wait till we find out what that is on the show <laughs> i was annoyed to start with because of how derivative of the lord of the rings it is Ooh, ouch um, but I kept going through it. I, I was kind of like, it was like a hate fuck, but with reading. Um, Is that then, a thing? <laughs> and uh, then it like pulled me in, you know, and I got interested. And you know how hate fucks are. <laughs> and then I was caught up in this web <laughs> of lies. I think it's pretty common knowledge when it comes to... People who are familiar with the Wheel of Time that it is very derivative of Lord of the Rings because in every media I've seen or conversations I've had about the series, that's always one of the very first things people talk about. So maybe it's intentional. But um, yeah, I think it was just that by the third book I saw how it was like so formulaic, I just kind of got bored, I think. But, you that know. can happen, especially with, I think, what, like, there's over 9,000 pages in the Wheel of Time? Yeah, I mean, personally, I'm not someone who gets daunted by number of pages, you know? Which is... Wow, flex. Personal preferences. But how would you like to read 9,000 pages of tripe? Not very much. Unless I was getting paid to do it. <laughs> well, I'm not here to uh, comment on the quality of the books. But I do know that they were written by Robert Jordan until his passing, after which point Brandon Sanderson picked them up and finished the series. And from what I have ascertained from fans, Sanderson was a much better writer. I believe it, and it almost makes me want to pick it back up again and give it another try. Just like jump back in at like book seven or eight wherever or wherever. Wherever he started. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Might not be a bad idea. <laughs> Maybe he'll do that thing like previously on the Wheel of Time. Right, yeah. Throw throw a little bone to me, personally. <laughs> yes, this is for Chelsea. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> All 
But anywho, uh, like I said, I don't know anything about this, so I'm going into this series pretty fresh and open-minded. So why don't we get a quick summary out of the way, and then we'll start talking about The Wheel of Time. Episode 1 from Season 1, Leave Taking. Okay, sounds good. Okay, so we have to do the summary really fast. So what happens is there's a prophecy at the beginning of the prophecy, and then after the prophecy, there's the people in the town, and they go to the town, and then they... Oh, God, PTSD from watching the episode. I'm just trying to emulate the style of the show. And then it ends. (laughs) (laughs) And then the town gets attacked, and then after the town gets attacked, the lady's like, hey, come on, kids, let's go get out of here, and this is prophecy. Light, dark, light, dark, death. Trollocs, okay. <laughs> okay, time for the delve. All right. So for those of you who uh, are like us and can't really follow something going that fast, I'll uh, re- recap what Jamie just did. Oh, God, you're going to keep what I said? I'm uh, horrified. <laughs> so in this world, there's magic. Hell yeah. I love it already. And there's also reincarnation. Pretty cool. Dig that. So far, not too different from our reality. Exactly. Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) There's an ongoing battle between the forces of light and dark, and this story is very unique so far. Then... (laughs) (laughs) Wow, I have never seen this before. We should be fair. Like, didn't these books start coming out in the 80s? Maybe. It's possible that a lot of the things we consider derivative were somewhat groundbreaking, at least for the time. I don't know. Maybe I'm just giving Jordan the benefit of the doubt. I don't know if the conflict between light and dark has ever been... <laughs> Not derivative. At some point, it was groundbreaking. Uh, maybe somewhere was. back in history, somebody was scribing cuneiform onto a tablet, just being like, "Fuck, I am rewriting history." <laughs> Hell yeah. Okay, <laughs> so these tablets are gonna blow people's fucking minds. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of you know organizations and concepts that are thrown at you and you're just expected to kind of limp along behind them as they gallop through the plot in this episode (laughs) so okay the organization of mages is called the Aes Sedai they're like the matriarchal fascist regime (laughs) of mages it's big girl boss energy okay they use a power called the voice which controls people's minds and that wait i was confused (laughs) oh shit is this dune (laughs) all i'm saying is fascist matriarchal mages but they have a middle eastern inspired name that's all i'm gonna say see this is good fascism though because it's fascism led by a lady so like it's pretty sexy yeah yeah (laughs) Step on them, you know? (laughs) It's like, you know, when you put uh, smiley faces on your bombs. Yeah. Oh, boy. So magical males in this setting are persecuted because it's believed that they're all connected to the darkness and they'll go insane if they use their magic. Probably true. Their fetid penises taint the magic. (laughs) Oh my god. It's the Y chromosome. That's the real problem. I think it's that, like, the dragon who's basically like Sauron, um, 
from the past who, <laughs> <laughs> um, can speak to all males who have magic and like infect their minds. Wait, is the dragon bad or good? I could not tell. They they kind of like wax back and forth, you know. Society thinks the dragon is bad. Maybe they need a marketing team. <laughs> Maybe it's just the Casey influence, but I'm not convinced the dragon is bad yet. All I've heard is that a fascist said the dragon was bad. Okay, and that's fair. And then they fair. murdered someone. Yes, which isn't good, but maybe their intention was good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> maybe they were just following orders. I mean, that's never been an excuse for bad things, right? I don't know if the dragon is an order-following kind of fella. <laughs> <laughs> How do I do this? So Maureen is one of the Ace Sedai... And she goes to this small town called Two Rivers in the country looking for the next reincarnation of the dragon. And she finds four. And it's kind of, yeah, because they never know who it is. And it's kind of confusing because they were saying that, like, he's male and... The dragon is male. The dragon speaks through males, but... When he reincarnates, he could be male or female. He could be good or evil. He could be tall or short. This is a clear ripoff of the 80s sensation Twin Dragon. Or Double Dragon. <laughs> <laughs> you mean the video game? Yes. <laughs> because you? there's more than one dragon. Okay. And that's okay. unique to that I was say, did you play Double Dragon? I'm a little confused. Where, I saw the movie. Where do they kidnap your girlfriend? <laughs> hmm. It'll happen. So, basically, this town uh, has a Beltine ritual party. Uh, there's a Trolloc attack. Boo! People are killed. Yay! <laughs> the town mage, who's called the Wisdom there, Nenev, is taken. She's captured. Bummer. And then Moraine uses big magic while her male swordsman compatriot Lan helps protect her from the Trollocs as they're attacking. Some pretty sweet team-up fights throughout this whole uh, pretty epic battle scene, I would say. Yeah, pretty cool. Then the next morning after the battle, Moraine takes four youths (laughs) from the town. Three males and one female. There's Egwene, which uh, she recently just passed a test into womanhood. Then you know how it is. You get thrown into a river. You have to find your way back home. Typical girl stuff. Yeah. Um, then there's Rand, Perrin, and Matt. And they're all- Who are also there. They're all sad <laughs> because they've lost loved ones in this fight. So Moraine flat out tells the four of them that one of them is the reincarnated dragon. And she takes them away from everything they've known. And she says she's going to take them to the White Tower- which is the seat of power of the Ace Sedai. I'm sure nothing's going to go wrong from here on out. And as soon as they're leaving, the Trolloc army chases after them through the forest. And that's where we fade out for now. All right. Well, I hope that's a good enough summary because that's what you're getting. And now it's time to head into the delve. Welcome to the Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of 
The Wheel of Time, the show. So, guys, I have a really important question. Probably the most important question for this entire episode. Why the fuck didn't Moraine tell the townsfolk that the Trollocs were coming and get the fucking four faded ones out of there before a ton of people had to get murdered? She, for some reason, wasn't totally sure who the four were. Until after she watched a bunch of people get killed? She knew who they were before the attack, but only just. I don't know how she figured it out. They didn't tell us that information. Just seems like real bad timing on her part that could have prevented a lot of unnecessary homicide. It's almost as if something is writing out their story and it's (laughs) not well done (laughs) yeah i'm gonna have to agree with that i feel like the show goes into great detail to set up like the structure of the setting but not to really explain why anything is happening and what i mean by that well there's a dragon (laughs) like barely like i don't the thing is it feels like Every character, like, the story is unreliable, but it's not from a character's perspective, so I cannot say that it's supposed to be. It feels like it was written unreliably. Okay. The mage is like, oh, I'm in this town. What is her name? Moraine. Moraine, she comes to this town. She's like, the dragon is here. We don't know why she feels that way, right? She starts harassing the locals. (laughs) True. She starts being a real dick to everybody. She is very mean to people. I would not be surprised if she let the town get killed to, like, find out if anyone else could do magic just for, like, a hide and... Like, ooh, let's see if anyone is impressive. I also felt the same way, Jack. She seems capable of great cruelty. From the get-go, she seems like a bad guy. Yeah. I mean, we are introduced to this character through the smash cut at the beginning of the show to just her narrating probably a thousand years of backstory while getting ready for war and then like the next time we see her she rolls into the town tavern after everybody's having like seems to be doing fine living their lives she walks in and suddenly she is the center of attention for everybody in the town and she is just being shitty to everyone she meets it's true that's not actually the second time we see her. At the beginning, after she's getting ready... Oh, you're right. We see uh, a group of, I think, five like Inquisitor-style women chasing down these two men. It ends up being one man who's just kind of losing his mind, and they end up torturing him, maybe killing him or kidnapping him. Oh, he's, he's dead. And then this character, whose name is... Moraine. Is just seeing it and doesn't seem disturbed by the situation at all. She's just like, oh, yep, that well, he was a guy with magic, gotta die. Yeah, I guess so. And so we've already seen that she's pretty not shaken by acts of cruelty that she could intervene. And uh, then we see her come to this town and harass the locals, who are very kind characters that we've seen so far. Yeah, up to this point, like, when... Moraine shows up in the town. We have had these great little vignettes to get to know a lot of the townsfolk. They all seem charming and lovely. They have full lives and are like 
integrated into their society pretty well, like from a storytelling point of view. And then Moraine just comes and fucks everything up for everybody, it seems like. And I guess it was going to happen no matter what if the Trollocs showed up and Moraine wasn't there. So credit where credit's due, but. Nope. Rand confronts her the next morning and says, oh, you show up one night and then the Trollocs are hot on your heels. And she basically admits that they were coming there because she's there looking for the dark one. No, they know where the dragon is, too. They're, she said that they're being drawn to the same place, not that the Trollocs are following her. But if they're trying to find the dragon and they're the forces of darkness, why are they trying to kill the ones that could be the reincarnated dragon? We don't know that they're trying to kill the dragon. The forces of darkness never said they were doing that. <laughs> so far, the overtly evil characters have not had a single line of dialogue well, in the entire show. <laughs> If they're not trying to kill the dragon, why did they use such a blunt instrument as the Trollocs? Because they were trying to kill everyone indiscriminately, even the four that Moraine picked out as the potential, like the four potentials who could be the dragon. It's true. Maybe they were pulling their punches against whoever was really the dragon. <laughs> Didn't look like it. And they kidnapped Nanave, but you she's not the dragon, we don't think. No. You're right. Maybe they were trying to kill the dragon and Shayatin or whatever. The Fade. The f the Fade is just, like, wanting to usurp him or something. You know, it is a good point, though. They kidnapped Nanave, so it's possible that the guy on that horseback without a nose, their leader, thought she was the reincarnated dragon. Or that she can give information that will help find the dragon. And that's why the Trollocs didn't harm her. They just dragged her away. True. She's the only one they took prisoner or attempted to take prisoner. <laughs> Seemingly. <laughs> the very first time we meet a Trolloc is as they have thrown an axe through a young man at this big dance party. And just to remind listeners, Nanave was the like mage in town. The wisdom. The yeah. And apparently in this town... The Wisdom are is a station that's like a mage who can use magic is and is also a healer. And they have the same source of magic as the Ace Sedai, but they're not with that organization. I'll say this much as far as the writing goes. Many of the characters have a pretty well fleshed out backstory that we get little pieces of. Like, Nanave is in a cave when Moraine shows up and... She's like cleaning the rocks and Moraine is kind of harassing her and being like, oh, you're a wisdom, huh? You're pretty young to be a wisdom. And also like the townspeople don't seem to remember when you came into town and Nanave is just like, hey, the previous wisdom is dead now. The people needed somebody to fill this role. I was orphaned. It is immediately a hostile interaction from the second they start talking. They do not like each other. No, but I like how we are getting, like, little bits of people's backstories. Like, so far at this very first episode, I think one of the strengths of the show is we are getting nice little vignettes about these people's lives that make them feel like more fully fleshed out characters. And through this interaction and, and others, we see, like, various forms of class struggle. Oh, my God. <laughs> so we can talk about that. 
Well, Moraine is this fancy outside oil tycoon mage who's... Wait a minute. (laughs) So, Moraine actually says to Nenev that there's no records of where Nenev came from in the town. And then Nave says it's not that they forgot. They remember. They just don't keep a written record. And... Like you're saying, they're they're very antagonistic to each other when they're saying these things. And Nenev kind of says to Moraine, you know, the wisdom who came before me knew when she was 13 that she could listen to the wind, which is like a euphemism in the setting for having magical ability. <laughs> and <laughs> we all remember the first time that we realized we could listen to the wind, right, everybody? Mm-hmm. So um, she says that she walked for like two months to get to the White Tower, the previous wisdom. And when she showed up in rags and like having an accent from like a poor territory or something, they shunned her and wouldn't take her in and teach her. And so it seems like she kind of had to teach herself how to be a mage. Yeah, you know, she she, uh, pulled herself up by her Sandal straps. Yeah. So it seems like... uh, Ouch. (laughs) There's definitely classism, or there's elitism, in terms of who's worthy of studying magic at the White Tower and becoming part of the Ace Sedai. Well, Moraine seems like she thinks that she kind of can just decide, oh, I'll let these people die, and then as they're getting slaughtered, she comes back back it seems like it's like okay i've seen enough murder i'll start doing something with my insane magical powers now to actually help stop some of the slaughter but the slaughter of the town is an example of how callous the ace Sedai are and how little regard they have for the common folk uh it's they're definitely an elitist group, probably made up of noble houses. Fucking mages. Women from noble houses. I mean, they there's evidence that they rejected potential mages from non-noble houses, somebody from just a common background. And um And this is a very provincial, like rural town. Yeah. So below the interest of the Aesidae. The only reason that Maureen helped protect the town was because she wanted to basically capture the four potentials. Weave them into her web of deceit? They didn't really have a choice. She wasn't giving them a choice. She said they were coming with her. Well, she said that they could stay, but if they did, then the Trollocs would keep coming there and attacking and basically slaughter the whole town eventually. That's not really a choice. No, I mean, it... it, it yeah, it's not a good choice. Um, so she's basically, if she's not capturing them, she's taking them into custody. She shows them. up and she's like, listen, guys, this is your call to adventure. It you is. have to be pulled away from your comfortable lives. But as soon as she shows up, she's treated deferentially and she's clearly an authority. Clearly all of the Aes Sedai are an authority wherever they go. 
And so people kind of feel like they have to follow their orders. Except Nenev is like instantly not into Moraine being there. It's true. When Moraine shows up with her companion. Life partner. Life partner. At the inn, everyone falls silent and is just staring at her like some, I don't know, god that just walked in. Basically, yeah. yeah. And uh, people are whispering like, she looks normal, right? And stuff like, they're definitely mythical beings that are very uncommon, at least in this region. Yeah, like Jamie said, it's kind of a really provincial, rural place, so they seem kind of isolated from the rest of the world. Yeah, I, it seems like Nenev might have some healing magic, but she doesn't seem to have any, like, fireball light beams like Moraine has. So, like, it seems like powerful magic use is either rare in this setting or... Or at least, because nobody can be trained here, they don't have it in two rivers. Right. Also, because they live in, like, a rural place, and Nenev is not part of this order This order that I find very dubious from just this first episode, there might not be any need for her to know dangerous evocation magic, right? That's possible. They don't usually have to contend with armies i think their worst threat normally are wolves yeah you know it's you it's great that you said that because the scale of the trolloc attack is so ridiculous like they're kind of getting fun like they're funneling in and the, the people are getting attacked but then like 10 minutes into the fight suddenly there's just a wall of them that seemed like they just showed up yeah. It's like, well, where were these guys? Like, why didn't they just sweep the town this way? Why did they send in, like, ten, but then there's fifty more? Like, wouldn't they wait to all get in together if they're trying to slaughter the whole town? But then suddenly they're just, like, lined up right outside where Murray is? Yeah. It's true. It really felt like the beginning of a poorly written D&D campaign <laughs> where it's just like, oh, you guys are, the party is all really weak and there's a big threat, but there are these two NPCs that are way OP. Yeah. And they're scripted to save you. Right. And they'll teach you. It, it just doesn't feel appropriate. Their power level is so much higher than anything around them. It's kind of daunting. <laughs> yeah. It's another reason why I have a slight dislike for them, because it feels like a lightsaber MacGuffin sort of situation. So these two show that there are clear gender roles for people in this setting, and it does seem to follow a matriarchal power structure, especially, I mean, definitely for the mages and like possibly for common folk as well. It's hard to tell. I mean, there's at least strong matriarchal traditions. Well, you know, this is a good point, And I, this is something I definitely wanted to talk about because at least as the focus of the story as we're seeing it, there's a lot of rituals and behavioral practices that we're introduced to that I actually really like, you know, from an anthropological perspective. It's really cool to see this focus on, like, coming-of-age ceremonies and stuff. Like, even in this first episode, we are definitely situating this big difference between the initiation of common folk versus, or I guess the initiation of women into this society 
Versus we don't really get any of that with the male characters. Right. Like we see Egwene getting her braid, which is this important part of a coming of age ceremony. They push her into the river and she has to find her way back to town. And it's this kind of big celebration involving that when she gets back. So it follows a traditional ceremony or ritual structure where somebody is removed from their community um tested in some way and put in a liminal space where some kind of transformation will take place and then they reintegrate into their community like when she comes back and so it was very cool to see that like clearly outlined by this but the male characters don't get to know what is going on and she says to rand that he can't know what goes on in their ceremony. And it is common in a lot of cultures for these ceremonies to be a secret. That's right. And uh, there is a speech that is happening as she is receiving the braid. They're like, as you receive the braid, know that, oh, the light will protect you. But even one day, if the dark surrounds you and you're totally fucked, you can know that, this braid indicates that a group of women think you're pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I actually, I wrote down the line that I thought was cool. To be a woman is to be alone and never alone. And I thought that was an interesting thing that Nenev says to her, kind of saying that there is a lot of adversity to being female in this setting, but that there is also this kindred spirit that women have with each other. And that you can have camaraderie with other women. Yeah. And so they're saying, like, uh, no matter how screwed you are, at least we like you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And comparing this to, say, a recent piece of fiction we covered in Dune, where there are the um, order of psychic women whose name is eluding me right now. The Shadarkai. <laughs> the Benny Jesuit. The Benny Jesuit, who now I'm realizing are clearly the inspiration for the... A Sedai in this show, um, or in the Wheel of Time series, I'm guessing. In Dune, it is still Paul who is kind of like, oh, but he's the important one. In the Wheel of Time, at least, the mysteries of being a woman are for female characters. Right. And it does seem like gender roles in this setting are more egalitarian to some extent. Yeah. Like... Layla is the blacksmith and um and Perrin is her house husband yeah and Egwene and Rand have like kind of an open sexual relationship and there doesn't seem to be any of the commitment of of like taboos around sexuality and marriage that we're used to that's right and I really uh I would like to uh I'd like to compare it to Dune one more time uh, because you said uh, the Benny Gesserit, uh, they they need a man. They pick Paul, right? And uh, in this setting, it's a little better because there's a one in four chance it's not a man. <laughs> <laughs> but also the Asadai, we don't know exactly why they're looking for this person. They're not necessarily a savior. That's true. The dragon isn't necessarily somebody that they need to like find and make one of them. They might need to kill this person, it seems like. Or it seems like they at least seek to control this reincarnated dragon. And it it's unclear 
if they want to kill them or control them, and if they're going to control them, like how they seek to do so. They also are definitely in a society that would condone this M-named person. Moraine. Moraine. To just kill all four of them if they were trying to dispose of the dragon. It seems like it. Yeah, with no repercussions, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, the other group that tracks down that other man that we see, the young man. We'll call that group the Inquisitors, because I think Jack basically named that perfectly. Whatever they're actually called in the series so far, Inquisitors sounds right. It works. And I think they're even wearing red, maybe. They are. The Aesodai secret police. Yeah, basically. (laughs) And so they're... Like the ASS, yeah, that's the one, <laughs> or ass. They're tracking down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck, the ass is here. <laughs> when the ass shows up, you gotta get out of town. Yeah. <laughs> They're tracking down this man that obviously can use magic, he's like a heretic, right? And they don't even give him a chance, uh, and they don't really seem to have. A way to test if he's the reincarnation, and they just seem like they're going to execute him, and they seem like they have full sovereignty in making a decision like that. Like, they don't seem like they have anybody else to answer to. No, I mean, inquisitorial legions tend to just kind of have their own set of rules that they follow and use to execute their jobs and their victims. The rhetoric of light versus dark in their prophecy affects their actions and the way they perceive the world around them and other people. And it makes it easy for them to justify persecuting magical men. Yeah. <laughs> magical boys. They're, they're, oh, those poor magical boys. I know. Rather than helping them learn, they just want to control magic and keep it only for the women yeah it's a full-on persecution of magical boys oh that's terrible i know yeah we're definitely getting a vibe of fanaticism is going to be driving this plot which is pretty common in a lot of fantasy yeah um i remember some of what happens in the books um yeah We'll see how it plays out in the show, but, um, so we'll see how this plays out and, like, who the Fade are. It seems like they're a rival organization that works for the darkness, and like Jack was saying before, just because we get to hear about the prophecy from Moraine's perspective doesn't mean that she's automatically like the good guy or if there's even good or bad guys or if everybody's flawed you know yeah hopefully it'll be more complex like that i think that there's a lot of space in this story for some moral gray areas i think moraine is not supposed to be bad necessarily because we're juxtaposing her against this inquisitorial squad she has a nose first of all well so do the inquisitors Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) For that matter, so do the Trollocs. Right. Well, okay, Moraine isn't wearing red. True. See, there you go. And everyone knows wearing red, the clear sign of evil. Right. No, but I mean, I think that, I think Moraine is 
already situated to be a complicated but probably well-intentioned character. She might be one of these means justify the ends. And by that, I mean ends justify the means type of characters. Oh, right, right. Who may soften as she guides these four, for lack of a better word, chosen ones. Or start to be like more humanized by her inter- interactions with them. We'll see. It's possible. She does seem conflicted, so it's possible that she did know who it was and she didn't want to pinpoint them right away so as to give herself more time to like figure out another way than rather than just killing somebody. Let me just point out one example of how she might be conflicted because when Land, her bodyguard, told her that they had to leave because the Trollocs were coming. This was after their totally platonic bath they had together. Uh-huh. Uh, she kind of nods, but she looks really kind of sickened and unhappy about leaving the town to their fate. But she seems kind of like she has a grim resolve that like, yeah, probably they should leave. And they're not around. It seems like th- maybe they do leave, but then they come back because they come back partway through the attack and help them out. Yeah, but the editing there is a little disorienting because... Like, she comes back with no, just kind of like, she leaves as if like, oh, we're just going to leave these people to their fate. And then suddenly she's there. It's like, are we going to get to find out what led her to change her mind? Or is that just going to be taken for granted that it's on the cutting room floor? I would like to touch on what her magic looks like. Sure. Well, this is a a light versus darkness setting, right? Yes, it is. Which means that. I feel that cringe you just did was appropriate. Um, She, in a way that is actually pretty cool, pulls light from light sources. That seemed cool, yeah, where she's like pulling the magic from the fire and stuff. And the memorial lanterns that are all over the place, which is cool. So that's very neat. But have you ever seen, like, kids on the playground realize, like, windmilling their arms, being like, this is, like, such a devastating attack, right? I I have, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what her magic looks like. Like, a toddler just flailing about, like, she isn't well balanced and just has stiff arms. The actor... The actor seems very uncomfortable with the direction to do magical crap with her arms. She doesn't have that Benedict Cumberbatch confidence of blasting his hands with, uh, you know, I love you signs in every direction. She seems a little stiff. Maybe it's a choice. I don't know. Yeah, well, it seems like it's supposed to have some degree of physical strain. Maybe that's it. Because when she was healing Tam... Of his wound, her body was, like, shaking as she was doing it, seeming to imply it took some degree of effort, right? Physical effort. Yeah, and she, like, almost fainted afterward. That's right. But she was wounded. Oh, that's right. She got a sword through her torso. Yeah, but it gets better, you know. (laughs) It does, yeah. I mean, the same level of attack basically just killed another character before... Marae, Marai, yeah. Damn it! Now I'm forgetting her name. Before Moraine got hit, but you know Moraine's a mage, so she seems to get a little bit of extra plot armor. That my favorite character, Layla, who just got killed in similar circumstances, did not get. 
just yeah. for the listener's info, we've been playing Elden Ring, so any character with an M name is just especially difficult right now. <laughs> True. Yeah, Layla was the cool blacksmith. Oh, uh, she I was instantly gravitating towards her when we met this like very focused blacksmith with a sweet braid and like an ear full of earrings. So of course she's one of my favorite characters. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I can't wait to know more about her backstory. There seems to be some issue with her and Perrin where I'm guessing they probably lost a child yeah. recently or couldn't have a kid. And their relationship's a little bit strained. I was really looking forward to them working through and getting into their backstory. And then Perrin accidentally kills Layla in the attack by the Trollocs. And I was instantly like, well, we don't have to watch this show, guys. We can just move on to the next thing. Yeah, that was the sad part. It was a pretty cool part, I think. Not Really sad. Bummer part, because she was like a character that we were all instantly attached to. Yeah, so to set the scene, Perrin and Layla are fighting off a Trolloc and doing some really cool kind of teamwork effort to fight it. They're both fighting their own Trollocs. There are two Trollocs oh, in two? the room. And they are fighting each other. They each kill their own Trolloc. Right. But Perrin does not see that Layla has killed hers because he's facing the other way. And when she moves, all he hears is movement, and he just turns with the axe, swinging, and catches her in the side. Which, apparently, this stomach wound was instantly fatal. <laughs> well, I guess this might be one of those poisoned axes, too. Oh, Was he using the Trolloc? So the Trollocs have Trolloc poison, which we learn from Tam's injury when he and Rand get attacked. Yeah. Up, in the, up at their house. Really more of a venom. But, yeah, it's Trolloc poison. <laughs> yeah. But the, yeah, the mage and her bodyguard just feel, like, way too strong. Mm -hmm. The other issue I have with her is her role is undefined. Yeah. We, when it comes to the Inquisitor figures that we saw, they have clear ranking and purpose. Right. If for a task as big as collecting the dragon... Why is there one purse, one mage and her bodyguard doing it? This is a fair question because Moraine is the most consequential character we've seen. She's got some of the most screen time, but at the same time, we know the least about her. And sometimes that can be good storytelling, but given the scope that she is supposed to be inhabiting in the show... I agree that it makes her feel like a poorly fleshed out character so far. We don't know why this is important to her besides the broad, she's a powerful wizard. She's yeah. a little too Gandalf without a lot of what makes Gandalf interesting. For those of us who find Gandalf interesting. <laughs> it feels kind of like she is privileged to the point where she gets to make decisions on how the world goes, comes into a small village and starts telling them what's what and pushing them around and talking down to them, then takes some of their children uh, after <laughs> deciding maybe I should help and then just leaves getting everything she wanted, right? I mean, if her motivation is that she is just this overly privileged like noble woman who just thinks that people should do what she says. That's at least a motivation. Yeah. 
it's like true. a believable one. But it's like I find myself respecting the Inquisitors more than her, even though they're outright hostile and oppressing people. Brutal. Because I'm like, at least they know what they are, right? <laughs> like, at least they're honest. <laughs> she feels like I I don't know her well enough. It just seems she seems cruel, not empathetic, and oppressive. And when she does good things, it seems like there's no, like, it's not coming from a good place. It's because she has need of whatever she's helping. It's <laughs> or, true. Or whoever. That's why I don't seem inclined to trust her narration, because she doesn't seem like a trustworthy person. She doesn't seem wise. <laughs> Yeah, it's seems- She just seems strong. Yes. It's like it kind of seems like we're getting the propaganda prophe- version of the prophecy in a way. Definitely. It seems like she uh, has violent power and societal power. Yeah. And so people, yeah, like you're saying, people are expected to just believe whatever she says, and I'm not inclined to do that. <laughs> and it's possible that there's more to the story than what any of the commoners or us as the viewers have been getting so far. I certainly hope so. But I mean, in terms of the prophecy and the the backstory of that, there there could be more to why the dragon was opposing the ancient Aes Sedai order and the nature of that conflict. We're just getting it very one-sided. Yeah. And uh, the White Tower, just given all we've seen of the Aes Sedai, seems like Mount Doom in my mind. It seems like a very bad place that they're going to. <laughs> or or the tower from the Lord of the Rings and it's Saruman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, to some extent, like we know that they are going to a place to be judged in some way or another. Like one of them might not be able to walk out freely once they have arrived at the White Tower. Yeah. And the judges... We've seen they they're the ones with the really strong, dangerous magic, fire and lightning and stuff. They they are really dangerous people. Maybe I mean we don't know if Moray we don't know if Moraine is working with the Inquisitorial Squad or not. They have the same rings. Yeah, it could be just a caster ring. Casting yeah, casting implement. You know what other series uses those casting rings? The Prime Merlinian. <laughs> From The Sorcerer's Apprentice starring Nicolas Cage. It's true. So you're saying that the Wheel of Time could be a prequel to The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Or a distant sequel. I'm saying that in my mind, the writing is of the same quality. (laughs) (laughs) Ouch, I think. (laughs) They're both fun. I would agree. (laughs) They're both fun, but they also hurt me (laughs) (laughs) well i know we have a lot of thoughts because this is a new show for us and a new set of stories but for episode one i think we can probably move into final thoughts all right guys so the wheel of time we're mostly amateurs to this but We've got seven more episodes to go. What are you thinking right now after watching Leave Taking? I'm interested to see 
where they go with this, hoping they deviate a bit and kind of do their own form of storytelling from the books. I mean, because like when you translate or adapt something from novels, it's best to do so, just generally speaking. I mean, subverting expectations of people who already know the story inside and out, I think is good. Yeah, and you just kind of have to because the storytelling styles are so different. But also, I'm interested to see if we see any more scenes like one that we haven't talked about yet, which is a establishing shot of the landscape around the two rivers. It's kind of like a mountainous region with forests. And in one of the many valleys in this region near the town, we see these tall tower-like structures that are too cylindrical to really be like spires that were geologically made. And they almost seem to have levels at regular intervals, like you would see in modern skyscrapers, but they're all covered with foliage and dilapidated. And it looks like the forest is trying to reclaim them. (laughs) Nature is taking it all back. And it really seems... It seemed to Jack and I at the time when we were watching this scene that like, oh, is this an ancient city? Oh, I think you mentioned it too, Jamie, that's been covered over. Is this in the future, actually? No, I, I think that it's just like wizard's towers that have like been grown over. But I mean, it's a cool looking shot. And like, I want to know what is going on in those old ruins that nature has taken back. That would be cool. We'll see. I didn't get far enough in the book series. I don't remember if it mentioned anything like this or not. Yes, that is interesting. And it touches upon the greatest strength, I think, of the show is the spectacle of it. Right. The costumes, the setting and the props are all 10 out of 10 perfect. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, looks great. It's very immersive to look at. So cool. They obviously constructed part of the town and Mm -hmm. it had a very believable architecture but also unique in really interesting ways and very lived in look it was very cool it was a place i'd like to visit (laughs) i want to say for the listeners if you've gotten this far and you're thinking about watching the wheel of time i think it's best to be enjoyed at least my impression of episode one like an action movie Yes. Just enjoy the spectacle of it. Get swept away in the action and the intensity, just the vibe. Right. And don't think about the dialogue or story. (laughs) Ouch. (laughs) I don't wholly agree because I think that there's some really good storytelling happening away from the main plot. Mm -hmm. I'm finding that I... In this episode, of course, this is the first episode. First episodes often have a really difficult task of introducing a world, grabbing your attention, and setting off a lot of events. True, you're right. So what I liked about this so far, though, is that I feel like the character backstories were very rich and were told in a way that told me a lot about the characters without having to be like, Oh, well, like, I'm going to use the character of Matt, for example, who's one of the four chosen ones. We meet Matt, and he seems like kind of a fuckboy. 
Yeah. And he's kind of doesn't really care. He's gambling. He's kind of pushing his friends to like bet money and stuff. And we're like, ah, this fucking guy. Then we see Matt outside at the party with his mom, who is like clearly very drunk. And she is watching her husband, Matt's father, flirting with a young woman. And Matt's like seems very shaken by how drunk his mother is. And he knows that this is this pattern of his father cheating emotionally, if not physically, on his mother. He brings his mom back to their house. She is being belligerent. She's saying that she expects him, Matt, to be just like his father, kind of a piece of shit. She kind of takes it out on her kids, too. Yeah. Two girls, younger girls. Yeah, Matt has uh, two younger siblings. Her mom, his mom almost calls them like little bitches. Yeah. Like it's really fucked up. And then I started to be like, oh shit, Matt has a really good reason for being kind of performatively flippant around his friends because he's really going through a lot of shit. Matt is definitely one of the most interesting characters and best written parts of the show. Because when he was first being like kind of a rowdy bother at the beginning, my analysis of why someone would be that way ended up being almost exactly his life situation away from his friends. And I thought that was cool. Yeah. But then even more after we really humanize Matt, we see that he still stole a bracelet or an arm cuff from the waitress at the tavern to sell to this kind of wandering merchant. So the show's not afraid to like give you a lot of human elements of this character. That's not just like, Oh, he's a really bad guy or a really good guy he's really complicated and i liked that storytelling and beyond that he's also really protective of his younger siblings and is almost like their real father yeah and i love that where where the trollocs are attacking and the parents don't know where the two young kids are matt goes out into the streets in the middle of an attack by monsters that are way stronger than any of these people has ever dealt with And he goes to find his young siblings. Yeah, he cares for them as if he's their parent. Boy, I really can't wait to see Matt's story through to the end of this season. I'm sure that nothing will prevent us from knowing this character from beginning to end of season one. You don't know how disheartening it is to hear that it's that character. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry. I am so bummed. Another character I think they do a really good job with is that Anakin looking kid. Rand? Rand, right? He kind of looks like if Hercules from The Legend of Hercules 3D and Hayden Christensen from the Star Wars prequels had a kid. It's so true. It's true. And I cared the least about him for the most part. I really liked... That's true. He uh, he is not the most complex character, but he wants to be a simple person, right? That's a good point. Which is his main motivation for life. He wants a simple rural existence. That's a very good point, Jack. And I think that that's actually good character building for his character. And it tracks with the character in the book. Yeah. But I want to focus on the connection he has with the girl who got hazed earlier. Egwene. Egwene. She has been given an offer to go and study magic. Which means she would abandon this life forever, and they are romantically entangled, like we said. She would not be allowed to have 
a family or to live like amongst the people in like integrated into their society. That's right. And when they share a nice intimate moment, this is right after her big day. He wants to hear how it's been because they're important to each other. She says, oh, I got this offer. And he gets upset instantly, right? And he's hurt. He pulls away from her. And she keeps, and I was a little worried because toxic masculinity is something that exists. (laughs) Right? I mean, so we're told. Yes. But I, I liked a lot that what he really wants is to, like, marry her and build a life with her. And when he hears that she could be pulling away, she hasn't committed to it. In his mind, he knows her well enough to know that that is what she wants to do. And so before she steps away from him, he steps away and leaves her. I thought that was very cool to show what attachment type he has. He's the leave before that you do kind of (laughs) guy. And then uh, later, when he's sulking, she goes to see him again. He's not going to see her. And he tells her the kind of life that he wants to live knowing that she's made up her mind not to be a part of it, but she's so moved by the sentiment. She's like, oh, she kind of is going to start comforting him. And he's like, no, I know the choice you've made and I support you, Yeah, even though it hurts and they have a nice moment. Yeah, he hugs her and they kind of cuddle, even though they're sad. Yeah. And so I thought that was really good. That was cute. The way it shows uh, the initial like panic of losing the connection. And then them being, like, healthy about it afterwards. Well, he realizes yeah. that that is what she wants, and he loves her so much that he's willing to let her, you know, not let her have her own life. He is willing to accept her having her own way in life and not, like, be an asshole about it. Yeah. This, this is what this show, uh, this is why this show confounds me, because there are parts of it that I really, that rub me the wrong way. And then there are these two characters that rub me the right way. <laughs> I'm like, so this is why I do want to keep going with it, but I can't say it's my like perfect. <laughs> yeah, so far my review of the show uh, is based on something Jack said. It is, uh, before we started recording, it is like a sandwich made <laughs> with all of your favorite ingredients, two ingredients that you're not really a big fan of and one ingredient you fucking hate yeah (laughs) so we'll see how the sandwich tastes as we go on through the episodes over the next uh bi-weekly periods i'm worried (laughs) life is a sandwich i want to ride it all night long (laughs) you ride your sandwiches I'm right. confused. <laughs> you write your sandwiches? Yeah. Chelsea yeah. writes her sandwiches. <laughs> it's like when you write a poem that looks like the thing you're talking about. Right. Sandwich shaped oh, yeah. poem. Yeah. Yeah. The sandwich of time. <laughs> oh, man. Now I'm hungry. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, <laughs> we'd like to thank you all for joining us as we set off on a brand new satire TV adventure. As always, if you enjoy the show, you might want to consider following us on social media at Swords and Satire on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter so that you can keep up with what we do here, check out our memes, and get in touch with us and let us know what you think about the episodes. That's right. And like we said before, we have a Patreon, guys. And if you go to patreon.com slash swords and satire, you can check it out. Just heckin' do it. 
You know, if you feel moved once you get there and you have the means, you can become a supporter of the show and help some of your favorite fantasy movie podcasters, the best fantasy movie podcasters out there. <laughs> That's right. And after you've just heckin' done it, just gone <laughs> over to the Patreon. And uh, if you find that you cannot chip in a little bit to support us over there, another great way you can support us is by telling your friends and family about the show, going village to village. Yes. Telling the prophecies uh, of our weekly released episodes. Spreading the word is just the best way to help, and we appreciate it. Like a peddler of fine wares. That's right. Except in this case, it's mostly fart jokes. <laughs> and poop jokes. And cats jokes. <laughs> and also we talk about fantasy movies. That's right. <laughs> and what is there not to love in those four or five things? <laughs> <laughs> those four or five very related topics. Yes. And we also talk about class struggle, so. True. But all that's the secret, guys. Everything is class struggle. That's right. But hey, until next time, Hail, Hail Crom! Crom!